This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we heard to talk about in this episode include... Rift Villagers. The Generic Supplement Mystery. Food as Treasure. And Lulu Hurst. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books. Play for players, run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, our miniatures are all wielding battle axes, our dice are polyhedral, it must be a lovely F20 segment. But what? There are no players in the gaming hut. It is just the GM sitting up late at night, writing over her pad of graph paper with her books out, Perhaps, Robin, could we help this GM? Could we help this creature who exists only to provide joy to others? I, I think we need to bring illumination to her lightless night and uh, help her uh, create some GMCs or, or NPCs, I guess, if this is 20 and you're, and you're feeling uh, uh, traditional. Uh, so a few episodes back, we uh, riffed a cast of small town contemporary or near contemporary horror characters, and I thought we would... Uh, go back and, and hit the granddaddy of all genres and uh, lay upon you in a rift improvised form a uh, cast of uh, F-20 villagers. And so uh, the premise here is that this is a village that the characters are going to be visiting uh, over a period of time as they uh, sack a dungeon uh, level by level, uh, room by room, uh, and uh, come back to their, uh, have this be their forward base, as it were. Uh, so they're going to be uh, living among these people for a, a while. And so uh, let's think about uh, who these interesting characters are that they can interact with, and even possibly some things that they can do with them uh, when they're not out uh, clearing out uh, giant centipedes and then bugbears and then uh, olithids uh, with, you know, Presumably a bunch of filler monsters in between that progression. So <laughs> Filler monsters in between the classical progression, centipede, bugbear, illithid. Yeah, it goes first level, fourth level, 98th level. 98th right? that's level. How, that's, that's how it how goes. That's how 20 goes. That's how it works. As usual, I have uh, prepared in advance some names because uh, names that you come up with off the top of your head 
are almost as lame as ones that you attempt to generate with an online uh, D&D fantasy generator character, and then you look at them and go, no, I think what I'll do instead <laughs> is find a bunch of old English names and then tweak them slightly to sound uh, more fantasy-esque, the way that uh, George R. R. Martin does, where uh, their familiar names just uh, drifted a bit. Like Ned. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, who's the most important uh, character in a village for the group of uh, D&D Earth-20 adventurers to interact with. The barkeeper. Exactly. The tavern lord. The dude who runs the place they go to drink away all of their dungeon money. So his name is Alden, and uh, I'm envisioning him as being a, uh, a bearded guy with a, a bald pate. And I think if we want to hit the whole theme of uh, guys looting a dungeon, he is an older, retired adventurer who, a generation ago, when this uh, the gates to this uh, dungeon were last thrown open and the uh, archetypal bunch of monsters started coming out and raiding the countryside. He was a young, fresh-faced soul from a faraway farm town who decided to come and uh, and fight the monsters. And after he fought the monsters, he uh, settled down, uh, probably because he's uh, missing, uh, let's say, his, uh, his left, Big part of his left leg, which got bitten mm-hmm. off by... Uh, what did it get bitten off by? By an ink egg. By an ink egg. Uh, and so he is the uh, worldly wise adventurer who realized that what he really wanted to do was have a tavern where other adventurers could be welcome. They could come and uh, share their lore, and he might be able to give them a, a hint or two so that he will mm-hmm. ingratiate himself to the uh, players by providing them with a good if a generation outdated information and sort of can be a, a a beacon of one direction where their past could go. And old men with story hooks drink free. Exactly. (laughs) That's one of his policies. And so uh, he presumably, when he settled down, he settled down in order to uh, uh, marry a uh, a local woman and her name is Delana. So she is also presumably uh, around the tavern, if not actually working there. What do we know about Delana, Ken? Uh, Delana's local. Um, Delana's family goes way back in this area, and that's uh, part of, partly why Alden has been sort of welcomed into the into the town's bourgeoisie, for lack of a better term. Um, and surely there must be a better term to describe a quasi-medieval um, uh, business-owning uh, community. Yeah, if it's a village, there's probably it's probably the the old families, right? The old the, families. Yeah. And so Delana would be one of the old families, or Delana was it Delana or Delana? The, you pick. Delana, she goes way back, and her families go way back, and her father was sort of the village priest, and uh, he was the guy who kept the worship of St. Cuthbert or Osiris or whatever it is that you worship in F20 uh, ticking along, and uh, kept the village holy and safe even when undead would come out of the dungeon or when necromancers would come by, and so... Uh, Delana recognized Alden as a fellow uh, struggler against evil and as looking super sexy with all those scars and uh, married him up. And uh, that's how he got to own uh, a tavern in the town without any sort of friction. And it's why he's sort of beloved by everyone in town is because he's well, he's married to the daughter of the old priest who may or may not be alive. I don't know. Is he alive? Do we need him? We need an old priest. We need a priest of some kind, but it doesn't have to be the old priest. It doesn't have to be the old priest? In fact, let's say that that is, in fact... And Delena may actually have learned some of the healing arts from her father. So, if you need um, a little bit of a cure light wounds now and again, along with the mulled wine, uh, Delena can hook you up. Right. Because there's always a need for more cure light wounds, I feel. Right. 
So she's uh, she's a, a devotee of of the uh, of the healing gods or healing spirits. But I'm going to say that we're, we're going to need a bit of conflict in this village. Uh-oh. And if we're pals with Alden and Delena, uh, therefore Harla is the uh, ranking uh, priestess in town. And uh, unlike uh, Delena with her uh, healing and encouraging of adventurers, Harla is a worshiper of the the goddess of fortifications. Mm. And it's a a local uh, variant goddess that the uh, characters haven't heard of before they got there and might have to learn about this local sect. But uh, Volcana is the name of the the deity, and Harla is no friend to the idea of adventurers uh, coming back. Uh, They bring nothing but trouble, uh, especially that no-good Alden uh, who uh, brought down the, the tone of the whole place. And uh, that bar that stays open all the time, that bar that stays open all the time. And really, people should be working on the fortifications, the stone wall that she's been trying to get built. She's known all along that the dungeon would bust open again and the area would be flooded with monsters. And she wants the village to be a fortress. And so without uh, and she doesn't want a a bunch of uh, uh, uncontrollable. uh, You're not the boss of me. uh, Adventurers coming around to spoil everything. And uh, she wants the uh, the town to be uh, impregnable to the uh, uh, soon-to-be-invading monsters and wants the uh, characters to uh, beat it the heck out. But uh, there has to be a reason why they want something from her so that it's interesting for her to refuse them. So it might just be that she knows uh, uh, some of the secrets of the dungeon or even has a special uh, weapon which uh, would be very useful against the predominant monster type of the dungeon, except well, the goddess of fortifications would also, in some way, be the goddess of dungeons, right? It's still construction. Well, it'd be the it'd be the ant it'd be the the goddess uh, who fights dungeons, right? So, but, the, so but she fights dungeons, but the but in a fortification, you need a dungeon, right, to keep people. Dungeons are just fortifications that fell apart. So Volcana would provide insights into the dungeon and understanding of it, and maybe even power over it because. That's what she does. She's a goddess and she runs everything, whether you like it or not. And so, uh, Harla is like, no, we're going to build a fortification, but where are we going to get all the dressed stone? Oh, we've got it here in this dungeon. We could just drag it out. So there's sort of a, yeah, but, uh, we, we don't want you pestering the monsters, but we do want the dressed stone out of the dungeon. So she sort of wants something from the, uh, player characters. The player characters don't want to be dragging a bunch of two-ton stones around when they could be carrying solid gold goodies, so they don't want to do that. But Volcana gives you really useful insights about what's down in that dungeon because Volcana knows, and Volcana shares them sometimes with Harla, or Harla says that Volcana does, and who would lie? A priestess? I think not. And so there's sort of an ongoing uh, sense, and I think maybe everyone in the village knows if we could just sort of get both of them on the same page, we could maybe build an awesome castle out of the stones of the dungeon and then everyone wins. But because Harla's really invested in being top dog and the uh, adventurers are, you know, no one's going to tell us what to do and make us drag stones around. It, it's just not going to work. So I think we need a, a trickster figure in the mix here. So that's going to be Gage. And, uh, Good old Gage. Gage what a is, guy. Uh, sort of uh, tall, uh, lanky kind of ne'er-do-well who would uh, sooner be... Uh, drinking beer uh, with his buddies. But uh, if Harla is sort of quasi in charge, she, before the adventures showed up, she was uh, putting together a press gang who would have to go and get all these rocks. And guess what? Anybody who commits any sort of an infraction, like being drunk in the morning, uh, mm-hmm. then is uh, legally required to serve uh, uh, Harla because obviously this village is sort of a unofficial theocracy. And so Gage is the guy 
who would have had to lead the crew out into the dangerous area where you pick up the, the stones uh, for the dungeon. And so he wants to be very sure that it's the player characters and not him who has to do all of this unpleasant work. And he's willing to, although he's no friend of Harla's, uh, quite the opposite, he's perfectly happy to do whatever he can to lead them into temptation and uh, tempt them into committing local infractions so that Harla can then uh, sentence them, try them, and sentence them to take part in the press game. Um, and also, uh, if if it looks like the players and Harla are getting along too well, uh, which is also not going to help Gage because then things get organized and guess who has to start getting up in the morning? Uh, Gage will play pranks on one or the other and try and use it to sow mistrust between the two. So he'll make it look like Harla is behind some sort of petty obstruction of the of the player characters. He'll make the player characters look bad in front of Harla and and mess with her. Maybe he's got sort of low level cantrip level uh, abilities. He's got like a, a a gnome friend that he hangs around with who taught him some illusions, or maybe his little gnome sidekick Kanox, the gnome, is is sort of a uh, an, an illusionary type guy anyway. And he makes them uh, makes a lot of them happen. And sort of one of the reasons. Canox hasn't been run out of town is sort of a general rule that he can't screw too much with the town. And he does protect the town in his own little way. But since the player characters aren't from the town, they're fair game and Canox can mess with them all he wants. Uh, right. And in fact, if they do anything, if they try any rough stuff when Canox does things that embarrass him, as uh, some player characters are wont to do, uh, he can then go uh, running to the other non-human in town, Elfrida, who is the uh, gruff a dwarven blacksmith, and uh, she's been busy uh, making weapons for this day that she uh, knew would come, and uh, she is uh, more of an outsider figure. Nobody really likes her, uh, but they they Can't need metal the weaponry. Can't beat the quality. Yeah, exactly. Also, she does a good line in, you know, plowshares and uh, agricultural equipment and uh, uh, pots and pans. Her cast iron pans are, are lovely. So all the housewives in town, all the anyone who has to cook in town likes Elfrida and won't hear a word against her. Well, it's not that they won't hear, hear a word against her. They won't hear a, a word against her uh, pots. Right, or, or a word of taking any action that might make her leave or stop making pots. Right. And so what this allows her to be is the sort of outside commentator figure who has all the gossip on everybody doesn't really like anybody back because surly blacksmith dwarf. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but if you get on her good side, which of course requires you to buy, uh, new and better equipment, uh, with new and that, better with weapons that, and armor. Yeah. With that gold that you've uh, bought or to sell, uh, the weapons and armor that you find in the dungeon to her. Yeah. She's, she's got uh, connections with the dwarves who are over the mountain and they can get rid of all those extra plus one swords and things that you don't really need. And so is there uh, one final uh, character that we want to add to this mix? We've got the blacksmith. We've got the bartender. We've got the priestess. Uh, who else do people need to uh, meet in, in the little town uh, like this? I guess the other figure might be the, uh, the druid. Who wanders in and out of the woods, yeah. sort of the other boundary figure? I was going to say romantic interest, but this is F20. That's, that's not going to happen. It could be a druid and a romantic interest. You don't know their lives. Uh, okay. Um, and if it's Tanith, the beautiful moon cultist and druid, then uh, she can be a romantic interest for those who want one, and just a simple druid for those who don't. And so she lives in the woods. She sort of uh, oversees the sets, the various weird taboos about when you're allowed to cut wood and when you're not allowed to cut wood. And she points out trees that have fallen down from lightning that you can drag off and make charcoal out of. And so she sort of keeps the town's 
uh, plant economy running, blessing fields and whatnot, because Harla is a little less crop focused than the previous gods, uh, uh, priestesses were, or priests were. And so, uh, Tanith sort of acts as, in a way, the town's sort of matriarch, although she's way too young to be a matriarch, maybe big sister arc, I guess. And, um, uh, sort sort of keeps the natural balance in tune and prevents the town from smelling and being like a medieval town would be. Right. And midway through, she can receive a vision from the nature spirits that say, you know what? Nature would be a lot better off without the dungeon there and without this village here that if Mm -hmm. uh, they're both taken out, we can then reclaim both of them. Uh, and, uh, and really nature would rather have that be the thing. And so we can have a, uh, a heel turn for Tanith partway through, except her reason for doing, uh, apparently bad things might be, uh, for the greater good, although not for the greater good of the characters or their, not for the local greater or, good or their, or, and certainly not of the good of the villagers who want to keep living right. uh, in the village. But it'll make the Ents happy, and, and who doesn't want to make Ents happy? Oh, that's right. Everyone doesn't <laughs> want to make Ents happy. Exactly. Well, once we're slagging Ents, that's a surefire sign. It's always the sign. Need... It has been for the whole exactly. podcast. If you, if you go back Anytime and listen to the episode, every transition is about Ants slagging. It's and, all about Ents slagging. And this one is too. So we'll be uh, back uh, after this commercial with another exciting segment. Kids, want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group? Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One to One has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One to One book, Cthulhu Confidential, combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos. Complete with three dauntless investigators, each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Crusading journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman. And Robin's hard-boiled private eye Dex Raymond. Presenting three terrifying settings. Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun. It's time once again for the business of gaming. And this time around, I thought that I would uh, nick a question that uh, came up when I did a recent Reddit Ask Me Anything. Uh, and uh, that was about the uh, appeal or lack thereof of uh, generic supplements for tabletop role playing. Were the were the Reddit people nice to you, Robin? Uh, yeah, they were. Sure, I was nice yeah. to them. So why wouldn't they yeah. be nice to me? I don't know. Um, you hear things about the internet, so I'm just glad it it worked and that everyone was lovely. I I believe everyone is lovely. You know me. I'm I'm sure you would also be welcome there with with open arms. Great. Anyway, anyway, but on the Reddit, someone asked you a question, and now you're asking us. Right. Because, you know, one of the rules of podcasting is uh, never let a, a topic lay fallow upon the ground. No. Uh, I believe that's also in the Bible somewhere. And it is. So, it's in Deuteronomy. Yes. 
and the uh, reference was to uh, generic uh, supplements because uh, throughout the history of uh, role-playing games, people have come along and thought, you know what would be the perfect selling point for something is a supplement that you could use with any game. Uh, then that, dun, dun, dun. that widens out the potential o- uh, audience to everybody who plays role-playing games, at least role-playing games in the genre you're addressing, right? A, a generic right. superhero supplement is not going to sell to F20 players. And there's been some really cool products over the years. Uh, the first thing that Wizards of the Coast did, uh, the Primal Order, was designed as a cap system, which is a really cool way of saying that here are a bunch of rules that go on top of any other set of core rules that allow you to interact uh, with the, the, the gods and, and deities and demigods. Uh, and they had a whole other sort of line of different cap systems planned that would fit with any game. Uh, now, of course, as we all know from our uh, history, they then discovered Magic the Gathering. And uh, once they got back into the tabletop business, they owned D&D. So the rest of that didn't quite happen. But and that continues to this day. People go, well, what people really want is a generic supplement. But they've never really ever caught on. And so I thought we would start by asking ourselves, uh, why is this apparently attractive selling point, in fact, a negative selling point that people uh, stay away from in droves? Care to theorize, Ken? I think that there's maybe a couple of reasons. The first one being that if you are the kind of person who wants to look in a second book for information about whatever, you are perfectly capable of looking in a, what I like to call generic game neutral supplements, books. <laughs> well, um, history books. You don't, you don't need example. to have a game supplement that tells you, here's what Viking weapons are. If you go and you look in any book about Vikings and it will tell you all you need to know about Vikings because what is actually needed at the table is not more information about Vikings, but how does this Scramasax or these, or this Hauberk work in the game that I'm actually playing? Because you don't want to do the work of game design at the table. Uh, first of all, because it's hard and so it's not that hard, but it's harder than playing. And Especially second of all, on the fly, it's usually hard. because it can seem arbitrary. If you're like, uh, I don't know, the scram sacks does die 10 plus two. And then everyone's like, Oh, well, I'm trading all my weapons for those because those are the best weapons ever. Oh no. And, I've, I've and now it's like, I've ruined the everything. Weapon economy. And so the, uh, and so the notion that, uh, what you actually want is a system that lets you take something and use it at the table. And for that, you do need mechanics and you need the mechanics of the game you're actually playing. And I, I understand the sort of the, the, the dream of some, and some of the books like, uh, Expeditions Retreat Press, I think did a book about the Silk Road that was really, really good and, and very evocative and dungeony and fun. And it was sort of like a GURPS book with no GURPS in it. If you think of GURPS books, they are sort of what generic supplements would look like, right. except they because also about half of GURPS buyers in the heyday of GURPS were buying it actually as generic stuff to use with other systems. Right. Uh, But partly that's because if you look at a GURPS stat for something, you can sort of brain out what the translation would be into your system. So since GURPS runs on a three to 18, basically for um, uh, human stats, you can say, all right, I'm playing D and D I'm playing call of Cthulhu. I'm playing any one of a number of one to 20 range stat uh, games. I can figure out and savor the verb brain out for a moment. Yeah. All right. Cool. Okay. Um, uh, please do. Uh, that's what I do. I just, I, I, I live to serve. Um, 
Where were we? All right. You can, uh, you can sort of make those calculations on the fly and you have something to go on. And it's easier to translate from GURP stats than from the picture in the Osprey book of weapons or whatever right. it is that you had out. Although there is that hazard because sometimes uh, generic supplements do sort of give you a scale or a number system or something. But in fact, porting from one set of mechanics mathematically into another is fraught with peril. And so, uh, it's almost, you're almost more likely to go wrong starting with one set of numbers and then trying to translate them into the game system that you want to use than doing it all from scratch because there's, uh, the, the breakpoints of any given system are, are quite different and the, the, the math, uh, doesn't necessarily jive and just trying to come up with a, something from the level of simulation that then works as a game role will very often betray you because the scales are often, uh, different in a way that is not immediately apparent. So that, and again, that's why GURPS books did not in fact sell to every gamer. They only sold to gamers who either were confident that they could uh, make those calculations um, uh, satisfactorily or to GURPS players, which right. was a bigger number in the past than it is now. Or, or who were willing to just work from scratch and ignore right. the, the game stats. Um, and so I think also another of the reasons behind this is that just the sort of hit of pleasure that you get from acquiring another book in the line that you're invested in is somehow not the same, that there's something just sort of unsexy. Uh, something might have to do with the word generic, right? When you think of generics, you're thinking of, oh, it's this blank yellow cereal box that says cereal on it. And all of the sort of the trade dress and uh, the style of illustration and the mood is not quite the same, right? That there are uh, you know, even the differences between Greyhawk and Forgotten Realms, forget the rule stuff, but just in the, the mood of those two on the surface, very similar F20 settings can be quite striking. And someone can be a Greyhawk fan, but not a Forgotten Realms fan. And so if your book of cool characters and taverns and floor plans is just sort of midway between it's kind of Greyhawk and kind of Forgotten Realms or it could be sigil or it could be freeport well then it's still none of those things that it doesn't uh evoke the uh, set of emotional responses that you associate with whatever setting you've decided you really really care about these days game supplements of course there's so many open licenses that you can have a quote-unquote generic book that is in fact a multi-system multi-stat book but even that doesn't hold out the promise of giving you your very specific Freeport Jones, um, who is also a pulp hero, than uh, an actual Freeport book would do. Yeah, um, I think part of that is sort of, I don't know, maybe a backwards tribute to the ability of the game designer to have created a specific feeling and maybe even something it, it doesn't transcend the setting, or maybe it does, but it's, but it's more than just the setting. It's more than just the physical notion of Greyhawk or the physical notion of Ravenloft. It's the sense of playing Ravenloft and playing Greyhawk is different from even the sense, as you say, of playing Forgotten Realms. And it's that act of creation, I think, that a, that a lot of game consumers are buying into is being part of this shared world or this larger numinous existence, this sort of symbolic citizenship, if you will, of, of Greyhawk or of uh, Ravenloft or of um, uh, the World of Darkness. And so even if you're like, Objectively, I understand that this GURPS book provides me many useful informations for my Greyhawk game or my World of Darkness game. It's like, you know, you're, you're visiting another country and eating a hamburger. You don't feel a thousand percent right about it. And perversely, 
On the other hand, as a designer, if you do something incredibly specific and release it to the public, the first response will be, well, how do I do this in Warhammer 40K? <laughs> right, yeah. And your response will be, I don't know. It was never my intention that you do it yes. in Warhammer 40K, but, you know, go with God. That's I also cool. don't know how to eat it as a salad, but, exactly. you know, knock yourself out. Yeah, this, uh, <laughs> this bicycle does not make toast. I thought that that was uh, outside of the specs. But the perversely, the joy of making a weirdo mashup is not as joyous if you're taking something that's designed to be kind of ready to be mashed up because right. it doesn't require that weirdo imaginative leap, right? That I think a lot of people who do kit bash would rather kit bash uh, wildly incompatible things uh, than to just do the easy work of going, well, this tavern could be anywhere, so it's here in Freeport. Yeah, I mean, I, that, that's true. There aren't a lot of, you know, pages and pages and pages of how do I set Freeport in the Forgotten Realms? I don't think anyone has ever asked that. But but I'm sure people have done it. But that's the process that they want to do. Yeah, I'm sure they have. But I mean, but I'll bet that there are many more pages about how do I put the Forgotten Realms into the world of darkness or whatever. And because that notion of the incongruity in the same way that I would never bother trying to replicate a hamburger that I had in, in England, in America, because what's the point? But if I have fish and chips in England, I will maybe kill myself trying to make those in America because those are special and the act of patriotically absorbing them into um, uh, A, me, but B, America feels better and and like a higher uh, principle than just sort of trying to do something that is maybe on the surface more compatible. You, you know what, Ken? Uh, I think all these food metaphors are uh, foreshadowing. Perhaps foreshadowing. Even, perhaps even presaging. Presaging. Well, that's good. You want to presage, and then the sage can sort of can sort of sink into the meat and, and flavor it. Okay. Well, in that case, we definitely better get to the next commercial and our subsequent segment. happens when demons lodge in your memories? Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In volume two of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Corey Welch. Ross Ireland. Patrick Joint. Nancy Feldman. And Adam Grotjohn. 
the sound of sizzling oil, the smell of blooming spices, and the shouts of, don't touch that, it's almost done, welcome us to the Food Hut, uh, where we are going to talk not necessarily about delicious foods that Robin and I have eaten, although we probably could, because that's the kind of people we are. Instead, we're going to talk about food as treasure in a game. Robin, what do you got for us? Uh, well, of course, in our history, which is uh, your favorite thing to base games on, yes, there is a long tradition of uh, edible things also being extremely valuable and conveniently portable items. And so uh, everything from, uh, from your myrrh uh, that goes with your gold and frankincense, which is a, a resin from a, a plant, to, myrrh, uh, myrrh is less edible, though. It's like that's like a perfume. I mean, you could eat it, but why would you? It, it is used in some foodstuffs and right. some some liquors. <laughs> well, that narrows it down. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it turns out that if there's a plant, yeah, that someone has kill put it you, in alcohol. Someone has put it in alcohol, um, and some people have even made good drinks out of it. From from um, the from the home city of Jepson's Malort, who am I to mock myrrh liquor? Exactly. And more to the point, uh, the whole uh, colonialism was largely driven uh, by the desire to go out into the world and deprive people in their local areas of their uh, local spices and take them back home uh, in order or to Or just make... deprive them of their liberty <laughs> than well, of their spices. The spices. I think when, when spices won, yeah. we need to deprive you of your, your liberty or, or often your life, right? Yeah. But there are, there are, uh, I, I've mentioned this before, but there are islands where Dutch traders went. There's... Six islands in the world where this particular spice is found. Uh, we will take over number one and burn to the ground and five other ones and kill everybody on all those islands yep. because spices are expensive enough to murder whole bunches of people for. And to have a monopoly position on. Yeah, the, the, the Dutch East India Company, very player character. Very, very player character. <laughs> they were the original murder hobos. They were the original murder hobos. Um, yeah, it's, it's, the spice trade obviously is, is one of the classic examples. Sugar. Uh, another one of the things that is food is treasure. The uh, sugar plantations in the West Indies, uh, while maintained at unimaginably brutal human cost, also managed to provide uh, a good portion of the income uh, from trade, at least, of the French monarchy. Uh, they managed to make a, a fat packet off of Haiti uh, back in the day. Uh, right, which, of course, is why abolitionists uh, stopped taking sugar in their tea, because the sugar trade was so heavily dependent on... And, and why, after the um, uh, 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 French and Indian War uh, in 1753, the British had their choice of Martinique and Guadeloupe, which are two small sugar islands, or all of Canada, and... The French, I guess, put them in their hands and sort of moved it around, and the British tapped the left wrist, and the French said, ha-ha, Canada, and kept uh, Guadeloupe and Martinique and thought that they'd gotten much the best deal out of that peace treaty. Right. So I think, presumably, though, for uh, the purposes of a, a game, which needn't be set in our history, uh, in fact, I think if we want to distance ourselves from the, the aforementioned horrors, we might want to set it somewhere else, or even like in a, of course, in a post-apocalyptic game, uh, food becomes the number one treasure. Exactly. Uh, the, the, that, those uh, cans of um, uh, of um, uh, Dinty Moore beef stew become treasures untold. Yes. It's like, I've got a, a brick of gold billion. Can I have that old box of sifto salt? <laughs> it's going to have that box of actual bullion. But you can uh, certainly have a, a, a world, if we go back to sort of more of a uh, idealized F20 world with a... a a good on one side of the fence and evil on the other where you are good murder hobos. Yes. Uh, where you are, uh, you know, you go down into a, uh, a dungeon and there's, uh, you know, a cask of a, uh, a 
fine anachronistic brandy, uh, which because brandy is pretty uh, post medieval, um, which you can take back to the surface, and that can be your you know equivalent of so many gold pieces. So you can create uh, first of all just sort of fun variants um, because you know gnomes don't particularly like cinnamon. Uh, but they just happen to have a whole lot of uh, cinnamon uh, sitting around in, in a cask from the um, guys they recently robbed. And that explains, you know, why uh, they've got a food stuff that you can then take back. Um, or you could have the idea of exploration of uh, past the boundaries of the known map in order to find new sources of spice or other expensive portable foods. And that gets you again back into something where you can allude to the history of things because there are all of these great false explanations of where different spices came from that were communicated to uh, Western merchants from the... Uh, <laughs> Possibly in the sense that if we told them what island they came from, they'd go and kill everyone on it. <laughs> exactly so. So, for example, the uh, traders in the Islamic world, when asked, where does cinnamon come from? Have you heard this story? No, no. Tell us the story of cinnamon. The explanation was that these uh, were uh, bits of uh, wood that only grew up high in the mountains, and they were especially favored due to their uh, uh, lovely aroma by uh, giant birds, by rocks, or ROC. And uh, so therefore, the way to harvest cinnamon was that you would climb up into the mountain and you would throw rocks, R-O-C-K, at the nest of the rocks, R-O-C, and dislodge the bits of their nesting material, which would then fall down to the foot of the mountain. And you, you would gather those up before the angry rocks then came and pecked out your eyes. Now, you will, you will note in this story that it makes finding cinnamon seem extremely daunting. Super hard. Yes. Or there are stories of, uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's allspice. Uh, I could be wrong. Fill in the name of your spice. Uh, where the, uh, these were grown on trees from which, uh, snakes, hung by the dozens. And so uh, in order to get uh, these little uh, bulbs that you would then uh, grate up in order to make cumin, you would then have to fight off all of these snakes. And of course, they lived on a treacherous island. And uh, so in a an adventurous world, those things might be true. Yeah. Uh, you might have to go and, and fight some rocks uh, because in a D&D game, the rocks are not just going to flap around angrily at you. They are going to come down and try and peck out your eyes or at least relieve you of many of your hit points. And then you have to fight them off. Or, you know, you do have to go to the island of snakes and uh, you either you can treat the snakes as a as a trap or there can be a giant snake that you have to fight. Uh, but all of these uh, kooky legends could uh, actually be real and give you a reason to have your your F-20 combat encounters. Um, I, I guess we can put a parenthesis here because I think it's more fun to think about how food as food is treasure. But obviously you have your golden apples of the Hesperides or you have your pomegranate of eternal life or you have any sort of things that might be food items but are also magical, wonderful things. Like if there was – when the grail makes food – you you know, I imagine that the prime rib made by the grail is pretty great prime rib. And so you'd want to use that to, you know, um, uh, well, first of all, you would have it on Christmas because it's the grail. But second of all, you'd you, you would want that prime rib more than other kinds of prime rib. But I think what we're looking at is the food substance as treasure, not the notion of magic food. Right. Right. Um, yeah, we could do a whole other segment on magic utensils. Yes, or, or, or magic comestibles, even. Um, another thing that you can do, then, uh, on the notion of food as treasure, and this is something that does go back to classical times, is the notion of various vintages of wine. 
and uh, you have wine snobs existed in ancient Rome, and they're like, if it's not Falernian GTFO, we don't want your crummy carrion wine. And people would be, no, no, it's from Gaul. It's just as good. And people are like, stop lying. No, f- no wine in Gaul is ever any good. No, that will never happen. Yeah, that's crazy talk. Get out of here. And the vines so are too young. Y- you can have the notion that uh, because there was some magical event uh, in the area, you know, a, a great magical battle or uh, whatever, that the wine that grows in this specific area is better than the other wines. You don't have to get into terroir or whatever else, but you can say, oh, because this used to be the wizard's headquarters, all the magical runoff ran down uh, the, the the valley, and in the valley, when the grapes grow, they're super wonderful, and they taste really great. And that wine, the, the wizard hollow wine, is worth triple the cost or, or three, 30 times the cost of the regular wine, and you can... Use that, and that can be the sort of thing that you bring, not even to sell for the silver pieces, but as a thing you bring to the tavern, you give it to the tavern keeper, and the tavern keeper's like, oh, this is the really good stuff. Uh, let me pour you a glass, and uh, then you've got an ally. And so the wine, the food can be a social currency as well as a, oh, how many gold pieces is the wine worth? Boring currency, because that's one of the great things about food is it provides you with more things to do than just trade it for money. Right. And and it gives you a, a sense of social connection to the economy of the world that you don't get from uh, old armor pieces and uh, uh, jewels and gems, because if your goal is to go and find the island of the snakes where the, uh, where the allspice is, once you find that, you're taking back a bunch of as many allspices as the snakes will let you carry, mm-hmm. but you're also going to go establish a trade route and make a deal with the guy back home to uh, set up an arrangement. And so that once you've done that, uh, you know, you can uh, figure that a certain amount of the, the gold and stuff that's coming your way is the uh, commission that you're getting from the trading route that you set up. And and that um, also provides a hook when the guy who's your spice merchant comes and says, oh, pirates have been attacking the trading ships. That's why I didn't pay you. And so you have to go fight pirates, even though you'd rather not. Yes. Um, and then, you know, maybe you get down there and you find out that, uh, he has led you into a trap because oh! he wants to stop paying Why did I have Mr. Johnson distribute my spices? What's wrong with oh, me? Oh, it said Johnson's spices right, right on the, right oh, on the sign. I fell for that right, uh, all like over a dummy. Again. Yeah. But his father's name was John. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. Camera <laughs> whirls around the guy's head, flashing back to previous sequences of the spice merchant. Uh, doing suspicious things. And you could also get into the whole uh, idea of social change of being caused by uh, food. Because what happens if, you know, now you're introducing all of these different spices into an area and uh, does does what you eat change who you are? Are there people who uh, think that only the proper bland food is uh, something that will appeal to Volcana? Uh, and Volcana is going to the the, the goddess of fortifications and, and food conservatism is going to <laughs> look at that and go, oh, well, this if it can't be dried and salted, it isn't food. Exactly. And so, uh, you know, you might face uh, a, a social unrest or uh, uh, all sorts of other things that will make the setting come alive in a way that uh, just another bag of gold. Won't. Or your food like uh, white sugar and chocolate. Uh, might be addictive. It might create uh, crazes, social uh, change in terms of people demanding more of it. And you're like, great, I can sell all I can get. Oh, now the king is ordering me to go get more of it. And if I don't, he'll chop off my arms because the queen is addicted to it. And she really wants more of this, um, uh, these the, these uh, snake berries or whatever. Uh, yes. And, and then that brings the, the possibility of uh, psychoactive foods, uh, which, you know, Mushrooms. Mushrooms. Magic mushrooms? Yes, indeed. And so uh, that brings us, uh, I guess, 
And that's beginning again to shade into another topic, which of um, magical foods, ma- magical foods, and also uh, uh, d- drugs and psychoactive substances in, a, in an F twenty world. And so, uh, once we're uh, once we're plotting future podcast episodes, I guess it's time <laughs> for us to uh, have some delicious allspice uh, snake burger. And then uh, having fortified ourselves. I, I, lo- I love a jerk snake. Yeah, as opposed to a, a snake that's a, a jerk. A snake that's a jerk? No, I don't love that. No. Um, and so uh, we'll, we'll pause for a snack now that we've hungered ourselves and then move on into our final segment. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. It's time to once again enter the diffuse and mysterious, perhaps even wallless structure uh, that is the Elliptony Hut. And how do we know it's the Elliptony Hut? Well, it's sort of misty and and uh, weird, and uh, and also there's a couple of aliens over there. The uh, the Nordic alien and the gray alien have uh, have gotten a little drunk on uh, on Kedden's uh, vodka tonic, so we're going to have to shoo them out so that they don't uh, start swearing in uh, in Neptunian. And, uh, oh, look, there's the alien big cat out in the moor, because we've entered the mysterious, dare I say, Fortean boundaries of the Elliptony Hut. And this time, we're here to talk about a, a little-known uh, superhero of uh, the 19th century, Lulu Hurst. She was born in uh, Polk County, Georgia, and in 1883, uh, when she was 15 years old, she uh, was caught in a uh, a great uh, electrical storm and got superpowers. Like you do. Like you do. At different points, uh, she described the source of power that she had tapped into as the power, the great unknown, or dun, dun, this, this, this binds and, and connects us, perhaps. It does. It surrounds the force. us. She got superpowers from the force in 1883. Uh, she was known uh, not only as Lulu Hurst, but as the Georgia Wonder or as Magnetic Girl. And, uh, Ken, uh, what more do we need to know about Lulu Hurst? Well, I mean, first of all, I don't think you need to know anything more. She's delightful. Uh, she engaged in a, a sort of a, a vaudeville career, because that's what you did when you had superpowers. Unlike Spider-Man with his selfish saving people, Lulu Hurst realized that what people want is entertainment. Well, Spider-Man tried it and then, and then didn't. But Lulu's Uncle Ben was not murdered, because Lulu's Uncle Ben... Uh, practiced street smarts. Um, <laughs> so she uh, she was promoted as the Georgia Wonder uh, and went around and did 
uh, her show. Um, uh, she was slender and, uh, one, one assumes, uh, dressed appealingly and would go out with, uh, her, um, manager and she would, for example, um, hold an umbrella. And when she would touch the umbrella, the person holding the umbrella would be forced to drop the umbrella because she was wrenching it out of his hand with her super strength. And she would pick it up and it would come to pieces or she would hold a stick and people would try and take the stick away from her and they couldn't do it. Um, uh, she could, uh, jerk them all around the stage. She would hold up a pole and, uh, five strong men would try to shove the pole over and she could hold it up with one hand because of her superpowers. And she could, uh, knock people over if they were standing ever so, uh, sturdily and, uh, just engage in a number of, of mystical talent abilities. Yeah. So, uh, on her character sheet, she has superhuman strength and, uh, telekinesis. And telekinesis, right. And, or at the very least, object focused telekinesis. I don't, I don't know that she would like sort of a proper force thing and, and draw a pole to her, but if she held a pole, uh, none could take it from her. Well, allegedly, there is one described trick where she, uh, causes a pole to rip out of someone's hand and, and go into hers. There you go. All right. That's, so she can pull a pole away. That's why I'm putting that on her character. All right. That's, I, that's legit. Um, uh, she, uh, engaged in her, in her career as a professional mystifier for two years and then retired with a million dollars that she had made on her vaudeville circuit, which in 1885 was real money. Well, it was the equivalent of a million dollars. Oh, it was still, the equivalent of a million dollars. Still real money. Still real money though. Yeah. And, uh, in 1997, she wrote her biography, uh, which was, uh, succinctly called Lulu Hurst, the Georgia Wonder writes her autobiography and for the first time explains and demonstrates the great secret of her marvelous power. And in this book, she sort of moved toward what the churls said. Oh, about the, yeah. I hate to real... see a, a young woman uh, give in to churls. Uh, yes, but churls at the time, when she was at her height, said that she's just using physics and fulcrums and stuff <laughs> in a theatrical way. First of all, <laughs> girls don't understand fulcrums, Robin. <laughs> Second of all... Ken uh, Height is officially on record as saying... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I said it in a... In a, in a you, um, you, were, you were doing the churl I voice. I was doing a churl voice. Yes. This is not, this is not Ken. This is a churl. That just a churl. That. I was quoting a churl. But she also... Um, uh, that, that's one of the reasons it worked is because you, you might be expected to be taken for a ride by a man, but a young woman is innocent and, and would not engage in such, uh, trickery and chicanery. And second of all, plenty of people had gone up and gone through the experience and you would much rather believe that you were overpowered by a magical force than by you not knowing what a lever is. Yes. <laughs> Yes, it makes you even actually dumber <laughs> to be overpowered by your uh, ignorance of physics than being overcome by a, a young, charming girl. But but in this book, I, she, I don't think she entirely backs away from the idea that she was empowered by the no, force. No, she explains that she gets magic powers, and then she explains in the tiresome nerd way how her powers work. It's like how people are like, well, Superman's actually able to fly because his body's a solar battery. It's like, that's <laughs> stupid. Superman can fly because he's a magic superhero from the sky. And and then you have to sort of like, well, no, but what if he's in right. an eclipse? And, so and all the other stupid So basically, she wrote nonsense. her own handbook of the Marvel Universe page. She wrote her own her own Marvel Universe entry, exactly. Or her own sort of, um, uh, uh, who's the guy that does the physics of superheroes? She wrote that. Now, uh, it is said, of course, that she retired and married her manager and then later years, in later years wrote this book. But we who know our superheroes, even our 1880s superheroes, uh, know that... Uh, Superheroes don't really retire. No. It's maybe for, you know, a few issues. 
but then they just put the mask back on or have to do something else. So what would uh, superhero Lulu Hurst uh, have had to retire from the vaudeville stage in order to heroically do uh, in the 1880s? Well, um, uh, she retires in 1885, uh, which is right around the same time that the U.S. Secret Service is getting going. Um, I suspect that uh, she becomes a part of an American League of Extraordinary Heroes, you know, with her and um, uh, and Jim West and and uh, other uh, uh, probably um, uh, Thomas Edison, um, uh, Tom Swift Jr. Uh, they're all there uh, working up uh, methodologies and going out and fighting uh, steam men and and uh, and uh, filthy uh, uh, invaders from foreign parts, and they hated British. And uh, she lived until 1950, so she could have been. Um, uh, out there, uh, a, a lovely doddering old woman, uh, walking through Europe and, and, uh, telekinetically taking rifles out of the hands of the Gestapo if she'd wanted to. So I, I, I kind of like the idea of a lovely, uh, little old Lulu Hurst at age, um, uh, 80 walking around, uh, occupied Europe as an SOE operator. I think that's kind of great. Right. Cause that gets her into the golden age of superheroes. Exactly. So she can be sort of like the shadow is to Batman. Mm-hmm. She, and, uh, she can be the patron to, to the, your current batch of, of mystery men. And you go down to Polk County, Georgia, and she's there on the porch. Oh, let me make you some peach cobbler. And then, um, uh, oh, don't worry, I'll get it. And she picks up the stove or whatever. That, that is super awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and I, I think that another thing is that, that she had other sort of imitators, uh, Maddie Lee Price, um, uh, Annie Abbott, other people like that. And so I think that what All she's actually got people put on the Iron Man suit, put on the Iron Man suit, what yeah. she's got is, is like the other slayers, um, uh, who show up when Buffy, uh, dies briefly. And so she's creating this team of magnetic supergirls who go around and, uh, thwart bad people in turn of the century America, uh, probably, uh, under the direction of, uh, the, the head of the secret service or possibly president McKinley himself, who can say, um, uh, and, and or president Cleveland, I guess is, is this time. So, uh, Grover Cleveland is uh, also, I think Grover Cleveland was fond of young ladies, uh, that that works too. So you have, um, uh, so you have uh, president Cleveland sending them out on, on various secret missions. And there's a whole team of, of, uh, electrical girls and, um, uh, and, uh, and super strong uh, women who are using the force and have, uh, these powers. Right. And being on tour as vaudeville acts makes perfect sense because it gives you your cover, mm-hmm. gives you your reason to travel around to, you know, it just happens that the uh, mine mole people, uh, that you need to investigate while they're in, they're in Cheyenne. So guess what? There's a vaudeville show coming to Cheyenne. And, and another thing you can do is, is play with, uh, notions where you're, you're like, Oh no, it's, it's she's a, a, she has the power of magnetism or she has a super strength. What she actually has is the ability to cloud your mind and make you weak. Right. Uh, that she may or may not have super strength, but she has the ability to make you weak. Uh, and she's got a, a secret superpower behind her ostensible superpower. I, I think that's cool, but I'm also really invested in having her be a brick. Okay. Well, then we can have, we can have one of, one of the other, uh, ladies, um, uh, Millie, uh, Millie Tat, no, Tilly Tatro or whoever right. can have the, the cloud men's minds and make them weak power. Right. Cause the whole, if, if all you need is to go out into an electrical storm and uh, be invested with the force. That means that each electrical girl can have a slightly variant uh, set of powers. Version of the powers that gives her the force. Yeah. 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 I, I like that. What, what other trouble can, can we get the, the magnetic girls into? Well, I think the, um, the idea that they were are touring around as a cover for their secret service activities introduces the idea that they could be, if they're, if they're touring with the, the vaudeville or with the circus, that there's a whole other range 
of uh, player characters or other superheroes who can be part of their super team, right? So you have, you know, the the lizard man or the werewolf boy, or you know, you can base a whole bunch of other. Uh, you know, sh- she's the strong man, but you can have, uh, you know, someone who's the. Uh, you can have the rubber man. You can have a whole set of uh, kind of uh, vaudeville slash cir- circus theme right. uh, heroes. Yeah, the the alligator boy can swim around like Aquaman, except with a bad skin condition. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, and and uh, you get your stage magician in there. So yeah. you have your and that and that lets us tie into uh, some of our other. And actually, this is true. Um, the guy who was uh, ah, what's his name? Wilkie Wilkins. The guy who was the. Uh, head of the Secret Service, who, uh, one of the secret, the guys who wound up running the Secret Service is the guy who invented the Indian rope trick. And a later Secret Service. I think this is all true, Ken. This, this is all yeah. just falling into place. Uh, the, the later Secret Service man did, uh, employ Houdini at the very least as a asset for human intelligence. And in a not entirely crazy, though probably not true book, argues that he was a straight up spy for America. And that that's why he was killed was by America's enemies. Uh, possibly the hated British. Right. And, uh, so if you've got the Secret Service employing Houdini and other magicians, um, there was a guy who was a, a, a gifted boxer who was also a Secret Service agent. He had sort of this, uh, he'd gone walkabout in, uh, New Zealand and he'd gained the, the power to take any punch. This guy. Kangaroo uh, man. Yeah. He worked for, um, uh, he worked for the American Secret Service as a spy and, in, um, uh, I forget where it was that, that he did, but there was another guy who was in Canada. He was a high wire act guy who was an American spy. Um, so the secret service was literally already hiring aerialists, mentalists, and, and super boxers. And that's for real. And that's in the 1898 turn of the century era that is almost the right era for the magnetic girl. So yeah, I think we've uncovered how that began. Right. So we've got an uncommercial sequel in the late <laughs> 1890s to the uncommercial earlier game that we both want to do in the burned over district era. <laughs> in the burned over district. Yes, we do. Yes. We are, we are on fire today, Robin. Uh, right. Uh, well, I think, uh, once we're on fire, it's time for us to go and, uh, put ourselves out. Uh, and we'll put ourselves out quite, uh, politely and we'll try not to, uh, set fire to uh, any of your furniture as we head on out and, uh, prepare ourselves for next week's exciting podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Astfageln. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Trade spicy anecdotes with such patrons as... Andrew M. Reichart. John Rogers. Benjamin Blanding. Graham Wills. And Jeremy Forbing. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>